What I've decided to do is I've decided over the next uh, couple of weeks to do a little three-week series, um, and I've, I really hope you're able to come back for, for the next two, and if you're not, maybe get online and listen through the website, um, because what I want to do over these few weeks is share with you three things that, um, that are just really important to me as I think about ministry and the church, things that I'm passionate about um, in regards to ministry of the church. Um, you know, I had the opportunity to share some of these things with the search committee when we were in that process, um, but I really wanted to be able to share these things with all of you. And so first up, I, I want us to talk this morning about how the gospel calls us and frees us to face out to the world in love. And to talk about this outward-facing love, uh, we're going to look at one of Jesus' most famous parables, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you find that, can find that in your bulletin, uh, it's Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. I'll read this for us and then have a brief word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll talk about this passage. So let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. Luke 10 beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever and ever. Let's go before him and ask for his help and understanding and applying this to our lives. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, would you be kind and good to us and merciful to us this morning. Um, Help us to understand your word. But don't just uh, leave us there. We pray that you would help us to apply your word to our very lives. 
And as we gather this morning, we pray that you would allow us to hear in this passage, um, like on every page of your word, the good news of the gospel in Jesus. Uh, Remind us that we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, but because of Jesus, we are far more loved and accepted and approved of and secure than we could have ever dared to dream possible. Father, do this for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a TV show uh, called, I I don't know if it's still going on or not, um, but it's called The Sons of Anarchy. And um, I just want to be very clear up front. I am not recommending you go download the show and watch it. it is definitely not a Christian show. Um, it's about a criminal motorcycle gang, and it is hard and ruthless and violent. Um, but the reason I want to use a quote from this show is because I think it illustrates how even when it's warped and twisted and distorted, there is an ideal that's been stamped on all humanity. Um, And this quote comes from a character in that show, one of the main characters, a guy named Jackson Teller. And it comes from a letter that he wrote to his infant sons about growing up to be men. And this is what he wrote. He said, there will be days when you are forced to make decisions that affect the lives of everyone you love. Choices that will change you forever. You reach an age when you realize that being a man isn't about respect or strength. It's about being aware of all the things you touch. Children face inward and wallow in their own selfish needs. Men face out and take action on the needs of others. I mean, that's the ideal. Right? Even if it's warped and distorted, that's the ideal that growing up and becoming mature means you're no longer turned inward and focused on your own selfish needs. But it means you're free to be self-forgetful. That you're free to be engaged in the needs of others. That you're facing out and you're taking action on the needs of others. And instinctively... We know this is true, right? That is the only hope for our world. That is the only hope for our communities, which are so divided and so fractured and broken and full of suffering and violence. The only way to bring healing to this brokenness is if we can stop being turned in on ourselves and become self-forgetful and face out to the world and love and take action on the needs of others. And that's exactly what the Bible calls us to. That's exactly what Jesus calls us to. That is the ideal that's been stamped on all of humanity. And this ideal in particular is to be realized in and through the ministry of the church. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, once said, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. 
just one more time. It's worth it. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. The church exists to face out to the world and to our communities in love. It's not optional. There is something unique about the followers of Jesus that frees them more and more to be self-forgetful and to face out in love. So we're going to look at this parable and we're going to talk about this outward-facing love. And I really want us to see three primary things. I want us to see, first, the demanding picture of outward-facing love. And then, second, the real enemy to outward-facing love. And finally, the only way to become outward facing in love the demanding picture of outward facing love the real enemy to outward facing love and the only way to become outward facing in love so first the demanding picture of outward facing love jesus in this story and in his parable he gave this man a religious lawyer he gave him a demanding picture of outward facing love See, when Jesus asked this lawyer to summarize the law, this man gave a great answer. Verse 27 said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus himself said, that's a good answer. It's a correct answer. And you need to think about it at least at this level. Yet the law is primarily about love. It isn't mainly about rules to follow. Right? It's mainly a description of love. Describing what real love looks like. So the law is about loving God supremely. Right? Loving Him with every fiber of your being. Loving Him above everything else in your life. And it's also about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about meeting your neighbor's needs, whatever they are, with the same passion, joy, energy, desire, and urgency with which you would meet your own needs. Loving your neighbor the same way you would love yourself. Facing out in love to your neighbor. And we're going to come back to this in a minute, uh, to this man's question about who his neighbor was. But right now, I want you to focus on this demanding picture of love. Part of the genius of parables and stories like these is how they, they really force you to use your imagination. Um, they help paint a picture for you. They take what seems to, on the surface maybe to be very abstract and they paint a very concrete picture of, of what, that you can imagine and that you can relate to. What does it really look like to face out in love and take action on your neighbor's needs with the same passion, energy, joy, desire, and urgency as you would meet your own needs? So let's look at this demanding picture just for a moment. Jesus set his story on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was a famous road. And it was particularly famous because of how dangerous it was. In fact, there was a stretch of this road that was so dangerous that at that time they called it the Pass of Blood. It was a place where thieves would 
lie in wait in caves and behind rocks and those sorts of things. And they would jump out and they would attack unsuspecting travelers and rob them and leave them for dead. And in this story that Jesus tells, a Jewish man was on that stretch of road and he fell prey to one of these attacks. He was attacked. He was beaten. He was robbed. He was stripped of his clothes and his belongings and he was left half dead in the road. And then Jesus says, the very people that should have stopped to help him, a priest and a Levite, passed by on the other side. Now listen, it's not that they should have stopped because they were ministers. Um, It's because of what kind of ministers they were. Right? The priests and the Levites, these were the ones responsible for distributing goods to those who were in need. These were the people responsible for mercy ministry in Israel and caring for the physical needs of hurting people. Right? Some think, you know, maybe the reason they didn't stop was because they were worried about possibly becoming ceremonially unclean if, in fact, the body was dead. Right? But I think the reason... is probably a little bit more simple than that. Um, and involves a little bit more common sense. Because I can think of one very good reason not to stop and help this man. I mean, it was a dangerous stretch of the road. And this man wasn't dead yet. Therefore, the people who did this to him might be nearby. Might be watching and waiting to see if anybody is stupid enough To stop and help this guy. So they avoided this dying man. I mean, let's try to bring it to where we are. This man was in a similar place to certain parts of our city, Baton Rouge, right? Where we hope when we're driving through certain areas of town and neighborhoods, where we hope that red light will turn green before I have to come to a full stop. Because it's scary to be here. It's like how when we see certain people, we don't want to make eye contact with them. Just try and help us with our imaginations a little bit here. Um, Back to our story. Then a Samaritan came by, verse 33, and had compassion on him and then cared for every one of his needs. Of all people, I mean, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. And you get a little taste of it in this story. Because when Jesus asked this man in verse 36, who proved to be a neighbor? In verse 37, this Jewish lawyer, he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Just a teeth-grinding acquiescence. Find the one who had mercy on him. Jews and Samaritans were natural-born enemies. They weren't alike. They didn't see the world or religion alike. They had nothing in common. And did you see what Jesus was doing? He was giving this man a picture that was exploding the scope of outward-facing love. Jesus was saying, your neighbor is absolutely anyone who is in need. Whether he's like you or not, whether he believes like you or not. 
The Samaritan got involved with a Jewish man. He met his needs. He applied first aid. He stopped even when it meant risking his own life. It was unbelievably costly for him to get involved, both personally and materially. He put the man on his animal, took him to an inn, gave the innkeeper financial resources to care for him. He planned a return follow-up visit and promised to pay any extra expenses that were incurred. He met his neighbor's needs with the same energy, desire, passion, and urgency with which he would have met his own. Now, before we move on to the next point, I've got one simple little question for you to think about, um, and it's this. Why do you think Jesus told this man in verse 28, do this and you will live? I mean, do you think Jesus was saying to him, You can be loving like this if you try harder. Or do you think he was saying, if I give you some good pointers and tips on mercy ministries, then you can live like this too. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing. I think Jesus was saying, I want you to look at this demanding picture of outward facing love. And I want you to really think about and realize how far short you fall of that picture. How you aren't doing that. How you can't do that. I mean, this is what I think Jesus is saying. He is saying, you can't and you will not become an outward-facing loving person until you realize you aren't an outward-facing loving person. You know, little children are notorious um, for trying to assert their independence and wanting to do things all by themselves. Um, A little boy wants to tie his shoes for the first time by himself, or a little girl wants to ride her new bike all by herself, right? My kids, I think, have all done that. Um, And at first, we might try to intervene, uh, try to stop the frustration before it occurs, um, And we tell them, I want to help you learn. You need my help to learn. But if they keep pushing, at least in our parenting, um, we say, well, knock yourself out. And um, And then we just wait. We wait for the tears, the frustration. The shoelaces tied in knots, the scraped knees uh, when they've fallen off their bike and those kind of things. In order to learn how to ride a bike or tie their shoes, a child first has to admit that he or she can't tie their shoes or can't ride their bike. It's not a perfect illustration, but listen, Jesus wanted this man crushed beneath the demanding picture of outward-facing love. He wanted the reality of this demand to really sink in. And until you get that, until you get this, you will never find the humility. And you will never find the resources necessary to face out to the world in love. Some of you know this story, I'm sure. Um, In the early 1900s, the London Times sent out a telegram and they were asking the most prominent thinkers and writers of the day to submit essays in response to the question, what's wrong with the world? And philosopher, theologian, author G.K. Chesterton wrote back with just four simple words. He said, dear sirs, I am. And we will never find the freedom 
to face out in love until we get that kind of humility. Until we realize it's our own inward, childish, wallowing in our self-centeredness that has gone to make up the world the way it is. Let's move on. Second, let's talk about the enemy to outward-facing love. What is the enemy to getting this humility that we need in order to face out in love? Um, What's the enemy that keeps us from facing out in love? I'm sure you've noticed that wherever you get your news, um, CNN, Fox, wherever, um, the basic headline every day is this. Nobody gets along with anybody. Um, Nations are pitted against nations. Ideologies pitted against ideologies. Political divides, right? Uh, Classes warring, races warring, cultures warring. Christian or not, we look at that and we realize that's not the ideal. And the question is, what is fueling this anger? What is fueling this conflict? What's preventing love and mercy flowing freely to, to others? What is the enemy to love? And in a word, the enemy to love is and always has been self-righteousness. Luke, the narrator of this story, he gives us a little insight into this man's motivation in verse 29. He said, but he, desiring to justify himself. Right? What's the bar I have to clear? What's the requirement I have to meet to prove that I'm enough? To prove I'm right? To prove I'm valuable? To prove I'm acceptable? I hope we can be honest just for a second. We are all deeply insecure. You are. I am. I mean, no one has to tell us. We know we're broken. We know we're not what we were meant to be. We feel it deep in our bones that there's an ideal for us, but, what, but we are all shadows of what we were meant to be. And so we're always trying to justify ourselves, to prove that we have worth, to prove we matter, to prove we're enough, that we're right and we're worthy of love. What is it that fuels all conflicts, all wars, all genocide, all bigotry, all racism? It is all our efforts to justify ourselves, to prove our rightness. It's our deep-seated self-righteousness. See, what happens when your race or your culture becomes the thing that gives you value and significance? You can turn on your news to see Or you can just look at this parable and see. If you get your identity and your worth or your significance from being Jewish, then all Samaritans are beneath you. And you can only really be loving to people who are like you, who measure up to your standard. You cannot be outward facing in love to anyone in need. Can you see what's happening in verse 29 when this man desiring to justify himself asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I mean, he was trying to narrow and limit this demanding picture of outward facing love. He was trying to make the demand of love manageable, doable, accomplishable, if that's a word. He was looking for the minimum requirement. He was grasping for something to assure himself that he was one of the good guys. 
And the question that I have to ask you this morning is, in what ways are we justifying ourselves and becoming self-righteous? See, this man in this story happened to ask Jesus who in an effort to justify himself. But if we're not asking who, we're just asking something else to narrow and limit this demand. We're asking when, or we're asking what, or where, or how much, all in an effort to justify ourselves. The actor Jim Carrey, interesting person, um, but I think a, a comic genius, and two years ago, he was one of the presenters at the Golden Globe Awards, um, and I usually don't watch these shows, but I happen to catch this, and when he came out to the microphone as one of the presenters, he, he walked up to the, the microphone, and he introduced himself. The very first thing he said was, I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, right? And then he said, you know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And immediately the audience started to kind of pick up on his humor, and they started to chuckle. And then he said, and when I dream a dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir, he said. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. And at this point, the camera was panning around the room, and everybody's laughing. He has everybody in the room with him. And then he paused, and he said this, Because then I would finally be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. Which was followed with small, very uncomfortable giggles in the crowd, right? See, the genius of comedy uh, works a lot like the genius of parables because it pulls you along and it engages you and it disarms you, but it's all setting you up for the punchline. Um, It's exposing you to truth from an unexpected angle. And here was a room full of people hoping for acceptance and approval, hoping to be admitted into that particular club and approved that they are enough and they are worthy and they are valued by their peers and they are justified by their peers. You know, in that funny little moment, um, Carrie put his finger in that room on that deep desire of self-justification and self-righteousness. And Jesus is putting his finger on that same deep desire for self-righteousness in us, which is the enemy to outward-facing love. Does it get manifested in racism? Absolutely. Jesus says it does. But we shouldn't kid ourselves. This desire to justify ourselves... It's the default mode of our hearts. And therefore, it gets manifested in all kinds of ways. We'll use our socioeconomic status or our political views or our blue-collar or white-collar background or our personality types or how we've decided to educate our children. And the list goes on and on and on. Anything that will help us feel like we're in the right and they're what's wrong with the world. 
And because self-righteousness is the default mode of our hearts, let me just add this. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, I know self-righteous people. Um, And thankfully, I'm not self-righteous. You do have to be careful. You're not being self-righteous about not being self-righteous. So much better than those self-righteous people. My point and Jesus' point is that the enemy to outward-facing love lurks in all our hearts of self-righteousness. And the only hope to conquering the enemy, this enemy to love is in conquering our self-righteousness. So let's talk about how that self-righteousness gets con- conquered in this last point, the way to outward-facing love. Um, I've been doing this long enough. Um, I at least know my own heart. I'm not going to speak for you this morning, but my temptation, especially when I sit through those, those first two points, is to start feeling pretty guilty and ashamed. But I want in this last point for us to look a little deeper in this parable because I don't think Jesus was trying to give this man a guilt trip. That would be actually be a very superficial way to read this story. Just... Just be better, work harder, be more like the Samaritan. What Jesus was really doing in this story is he was offering himself to this man. The way to outward facing love is for you and I to come into the arms of Jesus. The scholar Douglas Milne, he wrote about this story. At a still deeper level, the Samaritan's love is a mirror of Christ's love for us in taking the dangerous and lonely road into the far country of this wicked and violent world. He chose to serve our needs at infinite cost to himself through his own serving and suffering culminating in the cross. Ultimately, he writes, Jesus is the good Samaritan who loved us with a neighbor's love and by his overcoming has set us free to love in return. See, Jesus wasn't giving this guy another rule. Go be a good Samaritan. Don't be a racist. He was offering himself as the ultimate good Samaritan. Think about it like this. Who was Jesus speaking with? He was speaking with a Jewish religious lawyer. So who did Jesus want this man to identify with in this story? Not the Samaritan. But the Jewish man who is lying dead in the road, bleeding and helpless and totally dependent on mercy and grace from outside of himself, hopeless and helpless, in need of costly, sacrificial love. The man asked Jesus in verse 29, and who is my neighbor? But if you look, especially at the Greek, it becomes more clear. But Jesus subtly changes the question in the last in verse 36 and i think the reason jesus is changing the question is because jesus was asking this expert in the law and who was the neighbor to you right jesus wanted this man and he wants you to see that he is the ultimate good samaritan he came and walked the dangerous lonely violent road for you but so great was his love for you that he didn't do it at risk of his life. 
but at the very cost of his life for you. To be a good neighbor, you need the ultimate good neighbor. To become loving, you have to be loved. See, only to the degree you see Jesus as the ultimate good neighbor to you, will you ever find the humility and the power to begin living in an outward-facing, loving way to the world. See, this is what will give you the humility you need. You couldn't rescue yourself. You needed Jesus to come and die for you. But this is also the very same thing that gives you the affirmation you need. Right? Jesus willingly died for you. That's where you get your value, your worth, your approval from what Jesus has done for you. And the need to justify yourself is gone when you've been justified by the only one who matters. When you come into Jesus' arms, you get a humility that is shot through with confidence. You get a boldness that is thoroughly humble when you come to Jesus. How do you find the freedom to become self-forgetful? The, free, the freedom to break your inward gaze and face out and take action on the needs of others. I don't know if you, you've heard of this man before or not. His name is Cleve McClary. Um, C-L-E-B-E, Cleve McClary. He used to travel around and do some speaking. I think he's a good bit older now. I'm not sure if he does it anymore. But as a young man, Cleve had served in the Vietnam War. And while he was in Vietnam, he got caught up in a terrible firefight. Um, And he was severely wounded. One of his arms was blown off. One of his legs was blown off. He lost one of his eyes. He, had to have, he was burned so badly that he had to have skin grafts to over 80% of his body. You know, Cleve was newly married when he left to go fight in Vietnam. And when he returned home with his severe wounds um, and need for medical care, he returned with 55 other married men who also found themselves in a similar condition. And I want you to listen to this. Out of, 50, out of those 55 men, 48 of those wives divorced their husbands. That's a high percentage. They saw the disfigurement. They saw the difficulty. They saw the costly sacrifice. They saw the struggle that laid ahead, ahead of them. And 48 out of 55 said, no thanks. And left their husbands. Years later, someone was uh, pointing out this statistic to Cleve's wife and asked her why she stayed with Cleve when all those other women left. Very simple answer, easy to remember. She said, Easy. I stayed with him because Jesus stayed with me. Jesus wasn't offering the man in this story a program for mercy ministry. He wasn't offering him a moral guilt trip. Jesus was offering this man himself. He was offering him a totally new dynamic for life. The way to outward facing love. Come to him and find a new identity in him. Come to him and find humility and confidence that will set you free. I served, I stayed, I sacrificed, I moved out towards the broken 
Because Jesus served me. Because Jesus stayed with me. Because Jesus was sacrificed for me. Because Jesus moved out. And he moved towards me. Amen. Let's pray together.